Ladies and gentlemen, Casey with the music stand. Thanks, buddy. Uh, I know you guys know this. I um, really am a huge fan of your campus pastor. Love him very much. Love working with him. Uh, yeah, amen. Thank you. All right. Good morning, uh, Bannockburn. It's great to be here at my favorite campus. Yes. And I may have said that elsewhere, but anyways... Uh, we are wrapping up our Colossians series today, and I really want to summarize the whole book if I can, and I think I can do it with the single message that I had when we started off eight weeks ago, and it's this, Colossians, the book of Colossians is about the supremacy of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus in absolutely everything. Uh, simply put, Jesus is over everything, and he is enough for everything. And when that truth begins to settle into my life, and hits every little corner and every little crevice of my heart, there is no part of my life that remains unchanged. That was Paul's point in the letter. A bunch of people had crept into the city of Colossae, and they were teaching that Jesus and this whole gospel thing and this whole kingdom thing, it's not quite perfect the way you heard it from Paul. Uh, that you don't actually have a perfect kingdom, not quite yet. You don't have a perfect king, not quite yet. You don't actually have the perfect gospel, not quite yet. You haven't done the perfect things yet. Paul writes them and says that's complete and total bogus. You have the perfect. Your king is Jesus. He's the eternal. He's the omnipotent God-made man who died upon the cross for your sins in your place so that you would have forgiveness and life in him. That's the simple message of the gospel and it's the perfect truth that's all you need. And because Jesus is your perfect and awesome king, that means you belong to a perfect and glorious kingdom. And now in the kingdom of God, that means that you're going to affect and live your life differently. You're going to start to love others in your church a little bit differently. Not with a love that seeks to get, 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 but with a love that wants to give and give and give. And guess what? That same love, that same love of give, give, give is going to be found in your home as well. It's going to narrow into your home life. And you're not going to love to get, get, get. You're going to love to give, give, give. And so you're going to treat your wife differently. You're going to treat your husband differently. You're going to treat your children differently. You're even going to work differently because you know Jesus, this great, awesome king over your life. And not only this, but that same love, that same love is also going to affect the way that you view the world and the lost men and women around you, your neighbor who does not know Jesus, your brother who does not know Jesus, your spouse who does not know Jesus, even that same love is going to affect the way that you look at those people. We studied these words from last weekend. Let me read them to you again. It says this, continue steadfastly in prayer. Can my, can my volume go down just a little bit? I feel like you guys get me yelling at you enough. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. Thank you. Uh, uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. This is last weekend's passage. says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the ministry of Christ on which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Verse 5, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, I read those words again because they serve as standards for us in the world. 
as Christians in the world. This is how we, as followers of Christ, are to behave in the world. And here's the cool thing. Here's the best thing. The end of the book of Colossians ends with examples on how that's to look. The book of Colossians ends with a list of people that went all in for Jesus. And that's also why I really like teaching whole books of the Bible, because it takes you to places you normally wouldn't preach from, right? Like, would I normally preach from a list of names? Probably not. That's where we're going today. I'd probably like to start a new series or something like that, onto something new, but this is God's Word. And one of the things that we believe around here is that all of the Word of God is profitable. Every last word of it. And today is no different. Ten particular names mentioned. We're going to talk through. One dude even has two names. We're going to see what it looks like to go all in for Jesus. And it's going to look differently for each one of us. So let me ask you the question as we begin today. This is the question I want to ask you. What is it? And this is the question you're going to have to answer. What would it look like if I gave Jesus complete control of my life? How would it change my life? if Jesus was fully in charge? Or think of it this way, what would it look like if I went all in for Jesus? Colossians teaches us that Jesus is supreme and sufficient. He is enough and he is over everything. What if I put that to the test? What would it look like and how would it change my life if I truly began to live this way? Let me give you a warning as we start. Today's message, the last one in Colossians, the eighth message, could quite frankly be the most dangerous message to listen to in the whole series, because it could just change your life in all the good ways imaginable. Let me read in a bit, and then we'll pray for our time. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 says this, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. Okay, let me pause, let me pray. Father, we commit our time to you now, Lord. We believe, Lord, by faith that the book that sits in front of us, the words that we have just read are part of a living and active book. They're alive today, not because the words themselves move around, but because they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I don't want to miss that today. I don't want to miss a word from you today. So, Lord, I pray for open hearts to hear. Lord, what do you want to tell me today from your word? What is it you want to hear from my heart in response to you? Are you calling me for more? Are you calling me to lean in even more? Lord, help us, please. Just as you inspire this book, would you now lead our hearts to receive its truths? We pray your spirit be moving even now, Lord. Please, please, we... Without you in this place, what are we? Like, what are we? So please, Lord, your presence, your church, adoring you. Even as we listen now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, what would it look like if I gave Jesus total control of my life? How would it change my life if Jesus was fully in charge? What would it look like if I went all in for Jesus? Today I want to talk about four different ways your life could change. Here's the first. He may call you to go. He may call you to go. In the passage that we just read, we were introduced to two individuals, Tychicus and Onesimus. By the way, here's a tip. When you're asked to read a name from the Bible, just say it confidently and then everyone around you will just assume that that's how it's supposed to be said. Okay, Tychicus and Onesimus. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to bounce you around the New Testament and create little mini biographies of each of them. But what I'm going to do is highlight a couple of things about these guys and then spend most of our time in Colossians about what they are being said about them in Colossians. Okay, so let's start with Tychicus. His name first pops up in Acts chapter 20, and he also appears in, in the book of Ephesians. He's from Asia Minor, that much we do know. And he very likely followed Paul all the way to Rome at the end of the book of Acts. But he's disconnected from Paul right now, uh, having been sent to the Colossians on Paul's behalf. He's the guy who carries the letter, in other words. But he's not alone. There's a guy by the name of Onesimus who's with him. Now the next book of the Bible, after Colossians, is a book by the name of Philemon. And it's addressed to a man of that name. Because Onesimus is his property. He's a slave of Philemon, but this slave, Onesimus, ran away in a moment of time. And on his runnings and on his travelings, he bumped into a guy by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Paul shares the gospel with him, and then Onesimus has the lights come on in his heart. He gives his life to Jesus Christ, and now he's needing to follow Jesus and feels the burden to go back to his old master. In a sense, he's returning his master's property. So Paul writes a letter, Philemon, we call it to the master on Onesimus' behalf. More on that in just a bit. But for now, here's what we can learn. These two men are carrying the letter, the one that Paul wrote, the letter of the Colossians. They're also carrying the letter for Philemon. That's with them as well, two letters. And then there's at least one more letter that they're carrying. More on that also in a second. But look at how they're described. They're described as a beloved brother. They're described as a faithful ministers and fellow servants. And look at their job. Their job is to encourage and to speak the truth. Paul sends them to encourage the Colossian believers and to tell the truth. How did knowing and following Jesus change these men's lives, these two men's lives? Well, they left comfort, and one of them left freedom to bring encouragement and truth to people who needed to hear it. What would it look like if you gave Jesus total control of your life? What would it look like if you went all in for Jesus? I want to introduce you to a guy you may have heard of. His name's C.T. Studd. Here he is pictured as a young man. Apart from having a great name, Studd came from a wealthy family, super wealthy family, and he was actually a very talented cricket player who played for England. He was the uh, Michael Jordan of cricket. But he gives it all up. He famously gives all the cricket money, all of the wealth that he's got. And in 1884, he commits his life to the global calling of Christ and goes overseas to China. Stud would go on to serve in various missionary contexts in China and India and Africa. And if you're keeping track, at that time, in that stage of history, those are three of the, some of the darkest places in the world that have no knowledge of Jesus Christ. He goes there because they don't know. 
He goes there because he's sent there. And he's relentless in his commitment to spreading the Christian truth and encouragement. And he's dedicated often to a lifestyle that includes something far less than what he's accustomed to. Far less than the cush and the comfort he grew up with. He gave up fame. He gave up money. He gave up safety. He gave up status. And he famously said this. I love this. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great. For me to make for him. What would it look like if Jesus asked me to go? What would I have to give up? Safety? Money? Future? Security? Maybe the second question, would it be worth it to you? God may call you to go. He may call you to leave your family. He may call you to leave your friends. He may call you to leave your country, your security, your reputation. He may call you to lay it all down and leave it all behind. He may call you to do that because there are people somewhere that need encouragement and the truth. Would it be worth it to you? Would it be worth it to you to follow Jesus far from the familiar? to hang on to him? Would it be worth it to you to uproot your kids from their friends and from their family and from their schools? Would it be worth it to you to find security, not in your money, not in your friendships, not in your nation, not even in your church? Would it be worth it to you to hold on to Jesus Christ for everything you need and find him to be sufficient and supreme over all things? He may call you to go. Will you obey him? That's a warning. God is calling you to go all in. And if you go all in, he may call you to go. Will you obey him? Look at verse 10. Let me introduce you to a couple more people. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who's also called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. He may call you to go, but secondly this, he may also call you to stay. Aristarchus first pops up in Acts chapter 19. He's another one of Paul's travel companions. He was in the city of Ephesus in Acts 19 when it went into the full-blown riot mode. And he also likely stuck with Paul the whole way, all the way into Rome in the end of Acts. But he's locked up with Paul right now. We know this because Paul calls him a fellow prisoner. Then there's Mark, Barnabas' cousin. This was the same guy that he and Barnabas argued about in Acts chapter 15. And how cool is it? that right now he's being super helpful to Paul. He's with Paul too. And then there's a guy named Jesus, also called Justice, depending on what you read. Uh, we don't know much about this guy other than he liked a couple of names. Uh, and he was on the Hellenist side of things. He was probably very much a Greek-raised Jewish believer. Uh, they're the circumcised one. That's why Paul says that. Uh, look at how they're described otherwise. They're fellow prisoner. They're fellow workers. Comfort to Paul. In other words, even though these guys haven't left for the field, even though these guys didn't get sent out, even though these guys weren't commissioned, even though these guys aren't missionaries, they're still serving, they're still working. And here's the truth. In the family of God, there are no spectators. It's true. In the family of God, there are no spectators. If you're in the family of God, we want you to help. If you go, you serve. If you stay, you serve. I wonder if you've ever heard of a woman named Susanna Spurgeon. Maybe it's pinging in your head and you're recalling a more famous husband of hers, Charles Spurgeon. Susanna suffered from poor health all her life. 
She was confined by physical limitations to be mostly at home, couldn't travel with her husband, couldn't even make it to church most weekends, but the Lord led her to serve and serve even at home. And she started something called the Pastor's Book Fund. It started off really small. And the point of the Pastor's Book Fund was to, to aid in pastors who were poor in the city of London and couldn't afford the resources of a big church like she belonged to. And so she raised money and she sent them books. But pretty soon this grew. And then pretty soon there were other pastors in other areas and other countries around the world and other missionaries around the world who were saying, Mrs. Spurgeon, please send me books, send me resources. And over the many years of its existence, hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands of books were send, sent to hundreds of thousands of pastors and missionaries who would go on to reach hundreds and thousands more. She couldn't go, but her efforts were multiplied globally. She said this, it's a mercy that we're not left for ourselves to plan, but that our Father chooses for us. Else we might sometimes turn away from our best blessings and put us the choicest and loveliest gifts of his providence. In other words, what she's saying there is, if I was to look at my life and say, I'm bedridden, I'm struggling with health all of my life, my husband's a megachurch pastor and I can't even help him, and if it was just woe is me, woe is me, woe is me, nothing would be done. But it wasn't that for her. She received that from the Lord and said, you know what, even though I can't, I will do something else. Even though I can't go and do, I will serve. God gave me an illness. He asked me to turn it into an encouragement for the global church. He may call you to go, but if he calls you to stay, he calls you to serve. And maybe it's here directly at Bannockburn. Or maybe you've got a more global frame of mind. You know, our church saw the birth of a ministry within us that's fast outgrowing our church in notoriety and awesome impact for the kingdom. Uh, members of this church, in fact, began a ministry that's known as Switchboard. I know I've told you about this before. These are people with unique skills that are thinking globally around the world, and they're raising their hands and saying, you know, I don't know if I'm really skilled in, in missions work, but I know how to do this thing. And then they're reaching out to Switchboard, and Switchboard is saying back to them, you know what, this thing is actually needed over here in a church in China and a church in Africa, and we'd love to connect you guys together. Uh, whether, you, whether you go, you serve, or stay, you serve, there's work to be done. Now here for a second, I, I just want to correct a, a wrong thinking that we have. Sometimes we have this wrong thinking that understands missions to be front lines, and then there's behind the lines, right? We think that somehow, like a war effort, there are those who are on the battlefront, they're the real heroes, and then there's those of us who strive at home and support them. But listen, with the kingdom of God, everywhere is a battlefront. We can be on mission everywhere we go. Whether we go or whether we stay, there's work to be done. Here for a second, I also want to pause because I realize I, I need to be understood clearly. Uh, there are some who are in this church who are new to our church. And then there are some in our church who are brand new to this whole Jesus is changing my life kind of thing, okay? If that's you and you're in that place and you're, you're hearing me, I just need you to understand that sometimes the best thing for you is just to sit and to learn and to soak like a sponge. Soak it up. Hear the truth, let the truth wash over you, and then in a moment of time, God calls you to serve, okay? Like a sponge gets full at a period of time, right? And then you say, okay, you know what? I'm so full, I've got to squeeze out and I've got to serve in a ministry in our church. Hear, hear this from me, okay? If you're new to this whole Jesus thing, you need to sit and soak. But who knows? Who knows? Maybe in like three weeks from now, you'll be up here preaching, okay? Wouldn't that be fun? That'd be interesting. Yeah, all right, okay, I gotta move on. Sometimes God calls you to go, 
Sometimes God calls you to sit and serve, or sit and wait before you serve. That's okay. Sometimes God calls you to stay and to serve. Uh, let's, let's meet somebody else, okay? Verse 12, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. God may call you to go. He may call you to stay. Thirdly, this, he may call you to pray. We're reintroduced to Epaphras. We met him back in chapter 1, if you remember. He's the Colossian who came and found Paul in jail and we suspect told him that all that stuff that the Colossians are struggling with, he's the reason why Paul picked up the pen and wrote the letter to begin with. Now, not only was he concerned about the Colossians, concerned enough to go and tell Paul, but he's also struggling in prayer for the Colossians. Do you know behind that word for struggling? Do you know what that word is? It means literally it's drawn from street fighting terms. It's fighting. That's how persistent this guy is in prayer. He's working hard at it. He's got the bloody knuckles of a prayer life. And look what he's praying for. He's praying that they would be matured and assured in the will of God. This guy is praying that they would grow up and be rooted deeply in Christ. He's begging God for the souls of his people. And not just their souls, but also for the souls of the neighboring cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. This guy is a prayer warrior. This guy is bloodying his knuckles in prayer. And this, by the way, is an awesome way to pray for the people that you love. Uh, if you're in Christ and you want to pray for someone, oh God, I pray that they would be mature and assured in the will of God. Pray for my husband that he would be mature and assured in the will of God. For my wife that she would be mature and assured in the will of God. For Pastor Craig, Pastor Casey, Pastor Chuck, Pastor Alex, that they would be mature and assured in the will of God. And oh yes, listen to me, don't, don't mistake me for a second, God calls all of his people to pray, but he calls some of us to pray persistently in unusual ways. He calls some of you to bloody knuckle praying. And I wonder, I just wonder if maybe God has you in this church for that reason. Every believer is called to pray, but there are some of you who are just flat out warriors in it. And listen, for the prayer warriors in our church right now, can I say this? We need you now more than ever. I need men and women who are willing to struggle in prayer, that this church would grow even more mature and assured in the will of God. And notice, it's not easy for them, right? It's not easy for the prayer warriors. They're fighting in it. They're struggling in it. But they're willing to persist in it. I've been introducing you to people all throughout this message. Let me introduce you to a guy I'm almost certain that you do not know. His name is David Nash. Or Daniel Nash. Daniel Nash was a dedicated and fervent prayer warrior. He was coupled alongside in the Second Great Awakening, which carried over in the upstate New York, down into Pennsylvania and Ohio region. And he was paired unusually so with the evangelist Charles Finney. Charles Finney would preach revival messages and hundreds would come to know Jesus Christ in a single night. But here's what Nash did. Nash wasn't at those meetings. Nash would travel ahead of Finney several days in advance of any revival meetings that, that were planned, and he would rent a room in that town. He would gather others around him, church leaders around him, and he would spend days in prayer and fasting. He would grab hold of heaven. His prayers prepared the ground for the revivals. He is often credited with laying a foundation in which Finney would reach with his preaching, and hundreds would come to know Jesus Christ. But people only, not, only saw Finney. 
But it was Nash who was doing incredible work. In fact, many people say that without this man's prayers, the man who followed him wouldn't have been as productive. He wouldn't have seen the power they would have had. In fact, when Nash died, they put a tombstone, a small 12 by 18 tombstone in front of his grave, marked on it, mighty in prayer. And guess what happened to the revivals? They stopped. Lost the power. Finney recognized that the wind was gone from the sails. He went back to pastoring. History has mostly forgotten Daniel Nash, but heaven has his scorecard. You understand me? You understand me? I believe that there are some, even right now, whom God is calling to pray. There, listen, church, there has, there has been no movement of God ever that hasn't been preceded by prayer and bathed in prayer throughout it. Because prayer is your expression to God of his great and awesome strength. You and I can't grow the kingdom of God. That's not for us. We can water, we can plant, but it's only God who brings the growth. And so why don't we cry out to God to bring the growth? Prayer is the soil. It's the movement of God crying out to him. Please, God, move. I'm telling you this. We need men and women who are ready to bloody their knuckles in prayer and struggle in it. Listen, in the weeks ahead, it's my heart that you're going to hear more about this. But for now, listen to this. Every believer is called to prayer. But there are some of you who are flat-out warriors in it. And for now, would you please pray alongside of our church. We sent this out to our members last week. Uh, uh, 14 ways or 14 days to pray for your church. We would encourage you, if you can, go online. It's linked to the Colossians series as well. Grab that, be praying. You want to pray one a day, one of those prayers a day? You want to pray two a day? That's great. You want to pray all 14 a day, prayer warriors? That's awesome. There's no award for you, but we would love it, okay? Let God move as his people cry out to him. It's the expression of our need to him. Okay, we need to move on. Verse 14, Paul turns to some clerical things, okay? Uh, he says this in verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my uh, greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read also the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. Let me give you a couple of comments here. Uh, Luke is another one of those guys who sticks with Paul uh, right to the end of the book of Acts, a traveling companion. And it's actually here that we learn that he is, uh, has medicine in his background. Uh, this, by the way, is also the same Luke who writes the gospel that bears his name. Uh, Demas, the next guy, is a different story. Let me come back to him. Paul next gives a couple of hellos. Tell Laodicea, what's up? I love you. Uh, tell also Nympho, what's up? Love you. Love the church that meets in your house. Uh, and then and he says, uh, uh, and then take this letter after you've read it to the Colossian believers and then pass it on to Laodicea. And then make sure you get their letter and then uh, read that one in your church as well because that would be good for you to read both of those letters. But here's the sad part. We don't have that letter to the Laodiceans. Something happened to it. The Lord didn't see fit to preserve it, but it would have been fun to read, right? Probably would have answered every theological question you would have ever had. Uh, Lord, tell me more about election. It's in there in the Laodiceans. It's not there. Anyways, the point is Paul understands there's value in both. Uh, the Lord didn't preserve the Laodicean account, but whatever. Uh, and Paul wants those, both of those letters to be circulated because they could be encouraging in both. It's a neat little window into early church history. And then he mentions this guy, Archippus. And he says to him, essentially, hey, buddy, make sure you do the job that I gave you to do. What is that job? It's kind of, kind of a 
funny phrase. Well, here's the thing. Remember Onesimus, who was mentioned earlier, the runaway slave? He belongs to Philemon, and, Phil and Paul writes a letter to that slave master, which essentially says, let this guy go. He's an awesome servant. Don't let him be a slave anymore. He's a brother. He hands that letter to, uh, Philemon, or to Onesimus, and then Archippus is supposed to also be a part of that. And what do we know? Well, if you read the book of Philemon, you see that Archippus, get this, lives in the same house as Philemon and Onesimus. You almost get the sense, don't you, that it's like, hey, Archippus, make sure you look after our boy Onesimus. Don't let him get into any trouble. Make sure Philemon does what he's supposed to do. We don't know. But we do know more about Demas. Demas is mentioned several times in the New Testament, but the last time he's mentioned is in the last letter of Paul, 2 Timothy. Paul writes his second letter to his protege and says this in the end of 2 Timothy. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This is years later, years later from Colossians. Here's what we're getting. God may call some of us to stay. God may call some of us to go, some of us to pray. But here's the reality. Some of us may fall away. Look at how Demas is described. In love with this present world. That was a danger then, and it's a danger now. Some of us are going to lose our way because we love the world too much, because there's family pressures, because it's just too difficult, because the cost is too high, because we love pleasure, we love money, we love the good things of life, and we don't want to sacrifice those things, because maybe we see and, and don't like all the hypocrisy we see around us of so-called believers, because we love our accomplishments so much, because we love the world. And even though we may have a great start, like Demas is doing seemingly here in Colossians, we may not finish well. All the more reason, right, church, to hold fast to Jesus. Because when I stop seeing Jesus as supreme, and I stop seeing Jesus as sufficient for everything, then I maybe just maybe start believing the flashy salesman of the world who's promising me things and writing checks with his mouth that he can't cash. There's a caution hidden here at the end of Colossians. A reminder to hold fast to Christ. Okay, last verse. You ready? You've made it all the way through Colossians. Colossians 4.18. This is how Paul ends it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. God may call you to go. He may call you to stay. He may call you to pray. Here's the last one. He may also call you to die. Now, smarter folks than me believe that this is actually not Paul's last imprisonment. He's let out from jail, and he would continue on in ministry uh, for many, uh, several years before finally losing his life ultimately in Rome. But the details around all those are not so super clear. But nevertheless, after many nights in jail, locked up for the gospel, locked up because he believes that Jesus is worth it, that the present sufferings of this day are nothing compared to the surpassing glory that is to come. After many nights in jail, there was a day when the jail was unlocked and Paul was marched out and he gave his life for Jesus. The earliest church accounts say that he was crucified in Rome. Now listen, I did my own scientific investigation and I looked at some numbers, double-checked them to make sure that my facts and just make sure that I got it straight. And here's my results, okay? Here's my results. 100% of the people that are in this room right now are eventually going to die. 
death is a part of us. It's the last enemy to be destroyed, and it still lingers. It still pulls us from one another, from the people that we love. Still, for so many, is a constant source of fear. But in Christ, death is not the end, it's the beginning. Because of Jesus Christ, we have no reason to fear. Because Jesus has conquered death. And now death has no teeth to it. Death does not separate us from the people that we love, but it brings us right into the presence of the one who has loved us from before time began. And the great news is that even death will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Have you ever heard of John Patton or Peyton? He was a Scottish Protestant missionary, known for his extensive work in the South Pacific, particularly in the New Hebrides. It's now known as Vanuatu. It's an island chain. At the time, these islands were populated by cannibalistic tribes. In fact, the first two European men who stepped foot onto these islands uh, were killed inside of 20 minutes. But when Peyton, as a young man, began to feel the call of God on his life and uh, the Lord to eventually lead him to the New Hebrides, one of the older congregants in his church said to him, John, John, are you crazy? John, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. John answered with this. He said, okay, if I can just live and die serving the Lord Jesus, it's not going to make any difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. You get me? Worms are cannibals. Death has no sting anymore. And yes, he may call you to sacrifice your life for him. But we're all going to die. So I guess the real question that we need to ask ourselves is, what would I rather be doing when I do die? What would it look like for me to give Jesus total control of my life? Okay, last, I'm about to wrap it up. Let me introduce you to one more person, and then I promise I'm going to sit down. That last person is you. You came in in a moment of time. You took your first breath. You grew up. You had a lot of runny noses, diapers, laughed, cried, were loved. And then there was a gap of time where you did a whole lot of living. And then there's going to be a last moment, right? When you take your last breath and you leave this world. You see, what happens between those two moments are a lifetime of moments. They're a gift given to you by God. What are you going to do with them? Are you going to waste them? Are you going to sleep them away? Lulled to sleep by the things of the world? Or are you going to lose them? Use them? Listen, if Jesus Christ is really supreme over everything and sufficient over everything, as Jesus has taught, as, as, as Colossians has demonstrated, what would it look like for you to let him have total control of your life? He may call you to go. He may call you to stay. He may call you to pray. He may call you even to die for him. But these moments, they're precious. You only get one shot at this life. Maybe today you're sitting there saying, you know, I've made so many mistakes. I'm such a mistake. I got a train wreck, you know? Like all the things that I never thought would happen in my life are just sitting there, right back there. And I've wasted so many years. Listen, listen, here's the great truth. Is you think you're miles away from Jesus? You think you're oceans away from Jesus? You're only one turn away from Jesus. Only one turn. Only one turn of, Lord, come back. Or maybe even for you for the very first time, Lord, come. Change my life. Even today, if you would turn to him, even today, turning for the very first time to him, he's right there today. 
to all who would call upon him and believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. What would it look like if you gave Jesus total control of your life? That's a dangerous question, isn't it? What if you went all in for Jesus? Colossians has taught us that Jesus is supreme over everything. Colossians has taught us that Jesus is sufficient for everything. Colossians has taught us that Jesus is worth it. So what are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it?